From the frozen wastelands of the Pacific Northwest, we're bringing you Sergio Corbucci's cold-hearted snow western, The Great Silence. Movies and friendship, those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right, welcome back. Another week of the Twin Geeks here. We're snowed in this week, so it you know made it kind of easier to just sit down and record now, right, Calvin? Yeah, we've got uh, snowmageddon in Washington. Uh, uh, everyone's been incapacitated by a few inches of snow. Yeah, I know you had to you know you had to put off this podcast a couple of days because of complications with the snow and getting you know whatnot. But I still had to go to work. Honestly, it was mostly that you made a list of things you hate about me last week, and I was just uncomfortable coming <laughs> on the show. Well, I'm glad you managed to, to muster up the courage to face me again and come back on. You know, it's, it takes a brave man to do that. I mean, well, I, I'm just here because I, I need to show that I'm I'm willing to forgive. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I greatly appreciate that. You know, so thank you again for coming back and forgiving me for, you know, making up for whatever fuck it (laughs) (laughs) all right all right let's move on top 10 here which is uh, a better top 10 than last week but still not great you know there's a a lot of unoriginality here i would say certainly Uh, and we could look at that just starting at number 10 here miss bala so calvin i know we talked briefly before we started here about how many remakes or redos that there are this week yeah Uh yeah yeah and this is another one so you know, I don't think we we still not going to go see this. We still have no interest in it. You know, it's another remake of something that wasn't good in the first place. Um, it, yeah, if there's any note, it's the only film on the top ten directed by a woman. So if you want to go support that, that's your only reason to go do so, I think. That's really so, but, you know, we, we ought to just count here how many remakes or rehashes there are of various other things. Because number nine yeah. on here, it's not a remake, but... You know, it's another Spider-Man film. We still have Spider-Verse hanging around in the box office fur. Which honestly feels like the first Spider-Man film because it gave me so much life. Mm-hmm. But it does still, I mean, the thing is that it takes a lot of cues still from a lot of the original Spider-Man films. Like, the whole beginning is basically just, look at all these famous moments from the Raimi films that we've recreated in animation. It made them better. Uh, we're not going to get into that again this week, but... <laughs> yes, it clearly still is a remake in spirit but also doing something new so it's not like just a bland remake spider-verse is still good probably one of the few good films here still this week yeah and one of the few films that's better than anything else in the franchise uh, what do we have at uh, eight <laughs> uh-huh. uh eight we have aquaman not a... which <laughs> not a remake but adapted from comics yes it's it's certainly you know not something new quote-unquote but you know you know it... and it's uh... It's so lifeless how these things happen now. It's not even like a premiere of a character because he's been in Justice League, right? Like, it's not the first time that we saw Wonder Woman or we saw Aquaman. Yeah, there's nothing, uh, you know, it doesn't have any life to it, no specialness to it. But it's, you know, I guess compared to the other DC films, it's it's more lifeful. Like, there's a couple of pulses coming through. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun nor under the water. So, <laughs> so yeah, again, just another example of how... Uh, an original. We're kind of just stuck in this loop right now in Hollywood. Give us something different that we haven't seen before, please. I'm tired of talking Thank- about these same films. Thankfully, we have uh, we have a couple coming up that are uh, brand new and exciting for you. Are, are you pretty pumped? Yeah, you know, some later on this year, definitely more so kind of getting excited for, but, you know, I, I don't think there's anything 
in the near future still that's going to be exciting or new. Oh, I beg to differ. Look at number seven. It's Green Book still yeah. hanging around here. <laughs> <laughs> Green Book, which is just a reiteration of the Green Books black people had to use to get around in the South, honestly. So we could just call that an unoriginal feature. And it's racist. <laughs> it's apparently very racist. I won't, I won't state claim for <laughs> sure, but, you know, I've, I, yeah. I remember when it originally came out, I saw a lot of comparisons as a kind of like reverse driving Miss Daisy. Which, yeah, that that holds up, I guess. I mean, he's just like a schlubby Italian guy from the, you know, the Italian Bronx, and he's working at the Copa Cabana, and that goes out of business, so he has to drive around a famous black musician. Uh, I think it's worth watching. Yeah, with your family. Yeah, and, and it makes sense as to why it's such a big Oscar contender, like Driving Miss Daisy was. You know, you mm-hmm. you gotta you know hit the soft spot with those old white Academy members. You know, I'm. I mean, I think it's the best film from the 70s that came out last year. <laughs> uh, that's all I gotta say. Mm-hmm. Uh, going on, continuing our kind of remake sequels, unoriginal kind of ideas here. At number five, we have Glass. Oh, we skipped uh, six. Oh, you're sh- shit, you're right. My bad. Cut that out. Don't make me sound like an idiot. It's <laughs> 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 surefire way to leave it in. Uh, number six, we have The Prodigy. And Prodigy, we both looked it up. We don't know anything about it, especially a horror director. He's done some interesting projects, and the writer's done some, um, what did you say, some Globe-nominated stuff or something interesting. Yeah, uh, the writer, uh, he's got some more material that seems to be of note coming up soon. But again, it's more remakes. He's writing the, right. <laughs> he's writing the remake for Pet Cemetery. He's writing the remake for Jacob's Ladder. Like, there's just nothing original going on. I'm, I'm just so... I mean, I shouldn't not expect this, but I'm still flabbergasted. We need these safe bets from the studios because, you know, we're getting to a point where all the new stuff that's coming out, we're not going to cover on box office because it's on Netflix. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't know. I'm just tired of it. And it doesn't look like much much of this is rated well. We're in February. We're supposed to be getting something different. You know, it just feels like we're still stuck in January. I mean, year over year, we look at last February after the Super Bowl, we had Black Panther, which was like really blowing up box office. But this year, well, we'll get to what we got going on here, but everything's, uh, nothing's taken in any money. So mm-hmm. for the Prodigy to be at six doesn't mean anything especially. Well, if you think about it, as well as, um, you know, this time last year, or not last year, the year before in uh, February as well, we had Get Out in February. That was a huge right. box office, man. But we don't have anything like that this time. You know, mm, yeah, we had Glass early this year, which did well, and that's about the only note. It didn't do like you know Black Panther get out good though, and it certainly no. wasn't the you know the cultural phenomenons that they were, you know, and it wasn't nearly as good as they were. It's got about a hundred million box office now. I think it's it's doing okay. Ah, I don't know. Yeah, oh, and we mentioned here Glass. Glass is five, and it's you know. We talked about it on our previous, you know, earlier podcast with Tyler, and it's, you know, our takeaway is basically that it's not great, and it's, you know, not as good as Unbreakable or Split generally, it's just... Or, uh... Yeah. Or Serenity from last month. Yeah. So go see that. <laughs> That's still somewhere here that you can go see. But yeah, there there hasn't been any real interesting releases. We're coming up on, on some here. We got a, at the top of the box office, we finally got some new stuff. I'm not complaining that yeah. we don't have new stuff, I just want good new stuff <laughs> new stuff like number four no no number four is not new <laughs> yet it's another remake still again the upside still hanging yeah. out 
was it Kevin Hart, Brian Cranston, remake of The Untouchables, not nearly as good. Stop remaking foreign films. Just go read the damn subtitles. Yeah. Yeah, go watch foreign films. <laughs> yeah. Like the one we'll talk about today. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> and at number three, we have uh, more of the same of that. Uh, Cold Pursuit. Cold Pursuit, again. Another remake of a foreign film. Uh, I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But this is a... Cold Pursuit. Was it also called Cold Pursuit? No, I don't know. All right, you know, I'm just going to look it up because we have that tool available to us. It was a Skarsgård film. Oh, I see. This is a name that I can't pronounce. And I'm not going to worry about it. <laughs> but anyway, this is a Liam Neeson uh, revenge film. We'll have a review by the next time we have a podcast. I look I've, forward to that. I've been tentatively calling it The Grey Part 2, seeing as that's <laughs> that's that's, uh, that's Neeson's thing now. It's just like action vehicle with the twist, sure. Yeah, I'll... I'll... I mean, <laughs> honestly, this is like Taken 7, if we're being honest about what he's making. That's that's effectively what's going on. This is Liam Neeson's entire career. Oscar-nominated, you know, Oscar Schindler? Nah, we're not going to do that anymore. Let's go... <laughs> Let's go down this generic route of shoot guns and punch bad guys for 90 I, minutes. I've had conflicting feelings if I want to go support it based on what he's been saying, so I'm just, I'm leaving that out there that I don't know if I'm going to go see it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see Laura Dern's in it, too. I, yeah. I like her. Could be fine. Yeah, it sounds it sounds more entertaining, just, like, not terribly. Well, he, he's a snowplow driver seeking revenge. Liam Neeson <laughs> is all, always a blank seeking revenge, you know? That's his. That's his mo now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm gonna move on to the next one. We'll talk about this again next week, I'm sure. But no, yeah. number two, back in the remake zone again. What men want? Oh, fantastic! I I just can't wait to go see this original picture. That's not going to be exploitative at all of women during Valentine's Day. Yeah, that's that's effectively what this is. What? So, what women want? The movie that this is essentially a reversal of. It's a that. It's a Mel Gibson rom-com from the beginning of the millennium here so it's like 20 years <laughs> what what prompted this i don't understand um i think oh so, so it's not even that it's also it's also a race reversal that we're going on with here women are becoming the new pickup artists so they're going to go approach men and figure out how to lower their bitch shield so they can move in on them with their bros <laughs> you know what i mean mm-hmm. so i think that's what this is I'm looking at the ratings for it, and it's just awful. Like, absolutely dreadful returns on it. I haven't seen it this bad since, I guess, Glass. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, like, that doesn't feel like a significant amount of time, and it's not, but it's still, I mean, it's just indicative of how bad it is still. Yeah. I'm not, I have no interest in seeing this. Tracy Jordan, more, fuck, I almost called him Tracy Jordan. Has he done anything good since 30 Rock? <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, his stand-up's always good. I, I think he's hilarious. I love him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm a huge fan. I, I dig him on 30 Rock a lot, but I haven't seen anything outside of that that I can really enjoy him. He had that uh, comedy special pretty recently where uh, what happened after 30 Rock, he got hit by a truck, and he was like put out like a like in a small coma for a while, and he had to like come back and learn how to like talk and walk again, which is like something I kind of face, so... I right. felt pretty moved by that stand-up, and that was really interesting to me. So I hope we get to see him come back and making movies again. Hopefully, hopefully he can do something better. I'll say this: I like him more than Kevin Hart. You know, I think he's yeah. got more talent yeah. than than Kevin Hart does. 
Definitely. Actually funny, too. Mm-hmm. All right, and at number one here, surprise of nobody, is the Lego Movie 2, the second part, part two, so the sequel. So what, <laughs> what is surprising is that uh, it made half as much as the original, so... The whole point of this movie is everything might not be awesome. I think it's kind of conflicted with children aren't growing up uh, with the best political figures. Of course, you can factor that in, but everything in their life isn't going to be awesome. And occasionally, you know, your sister's going to join you to play. So I had this feeling about it like it was going to be about the destructive nature of like young women and how they play or how boys view their play. But it kind of surprised me by the end. It kind of came around and showed a lot of heart and what it had to do. You could tell that Phil, uh, was it Lord and Miller, uh, still behind the writing in this one. Yeah, that was basically the gist that you had in your review, which, you know, is on the, the TwinGeeks.com now. You can read. And, you know, I'll admit as well that this was something when it was announced I had no interest in. You know, it did not seem yeah. like the Lego movie needed a sequel. And even if I thought that they could pull it off, it just wasn't something I was terribly interested in. So I'm not surprised that it's only doing half of what the original Lego movie did. And, you know, I haven't heard anyone really talking about it like the first one was. The first one was a kind of revelation. Like, nobody expected it to be any bit decent. And it was a phenomenal accomplishment. Yeah. Like, how do you follow um, that up? I, we talked about it last week. How do you follow up the ending with Will Ferrell, like, peering over the toys and, uh, you know, breaking the fourth wall? The way that they follow it up is by Will Ferrell opening the movie again. And um, he only has really uh, voice parts, which is interesting. They couldn't get him on for uh, for all their live action parts this time. He was probably too busy making Holmes and Watson, right? <laughs> I'm sure that's it, right? And he's in what's that uh, Force Majeure, uh, whatever that remake is this year. God damn it! <laughs> There's so many coming. remakes. Stop it! <laughs> right, he's make he's remaking two or three things right now, so we got that to look forward to. Um, uh. Yeah, my reviews on the site, I think the music's amazing. The music might overall be better, except it never reaches that one song. Everything is awesome. Yeah. It's still stuck I in mean, my head. The, <laughs> everything's not awesome is pretty funny with the uh, with one of the characters being like, uh, oh, maybe now I understand Radiohead, because he's like drowning <laughs> in his sorrows. And, and the guy's like, try Elliot Smith. I, I thought that was pretty funny. I was losing my shit a little bit. I, I do get to ask, because I remember like the one bit of news I saw about the film was revolving around the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was going to be in the film. Yeah. Was, was that satisfying? Funny. Yeah, she's funny. And she goes to officiate. Well, uh, one of the girls' Lego blocks is going to marry Batman, so she's kind of there to officiate the whole thing, and that's pretty funny. Yeah, it's, it's cute, I guess. Yeah, it's a cute movie. I, I recommend it. I, I think everyone should go see it. I didn't. I didn't want that outcome. I figured. Uh, I figured I'd be cyn cynical because it's not the two guys directing it, since they were busy with Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad it turned out halfway decent. I don't ever want to see a film fail necessarily, unless it's. No, I want everything to basically succeed. Like, I think it's. I think it sucks right now because everything basically succeeds if it has a budget. But, um, I mean, I want people to go out and like films, even if we dislike them here. I. I still want everyone else to go enjoy what's out there yeah so if we take a look back though we can look at uh some other streaming options you know we started to highlight yeah. those last week and we'll continue to do that we only have a, a couple for this week to talk about first one is the new netflix uh from steven soderbergh who apparently has an iphone obsession now yeah uh soderbergh got an iphone a couple of years ago and <laughs> now he just <laughs> uses it to make all his films 
uh, last year was Unsane, which, did you see that? I didn't see that, but I heard, okay. you know, good things. I was with it. Claire Foy, right? Yeah, Claire Foy is amazing in it, and um, it is kind of like a 70s revenge film that wouldn't be made today, so he kind of leverages new technology to make it look like old tech. Mm-hmm. And I kind of love the idea that someone who could go get a budget and go work in the studio system kind of went his own way and kind of showed everyone that they could go make a movie. Like, Tangerine's of... great, but... Tangerine's not Soderbergh. That's kind of the idea as well, is that Soderbergh quote-unquote retired for like all of five seconds before he came around back yeah, again with uh, Logan Lucky. Uh, that was Logan a, Lucky was great. That was the year before, yeah. Um, and High Flying Bird's pretty good. It's a basketball movie without that much basketball. Uh, you know Soderbergh was originally going to do uh, Moneyball, so this is him kind of applying that formula into basketball, which I always wanted, so mm-hmm. that's cool. Yeah, so that was an exciting one for people to check out. Again, more Netflix releases. You know, Netflix is getting a bigger catalog all the time, becoming a superpower. But the other streaming service to talk about going on right now is the upcoming Criterion channel, which you can sign up for right now, like we said last week, if you, you know, uh, want to, and you get access to their weekly (laughs) feature. Last week was Mikey and Nikki. This one is Chunking Express. And, I mean, we're not um, sponsored or anything by them. We just no. really love old movies. And if if we don't love the movie that week, we're not going to talk about it. But in this case, uh, Chunking Express is at least interesting. It's notable. You know, I wouldn't say I love it, certainly. I have, you know, I'm, I'm mixed on it. But it's very notable. There are very, you know, interesting things about it. And a lot of people love it. Um, you know, I, one of the biggest things I see on Criterion forums all the time is everyone screaming about getting a Wong Kar Wai box set or upgrading the <laughs> Criterion copy of Chunking Express. And so, like, when I think they just keep doing this, like, Criterion keeps hinting at it. They'll, they'll post a picture on their Twitter every so often from it, or they'll do shit mm-hmm. like this and they'll post a film up and be like, oh, maybe we are doing it. And, and then everyone goes crazy for a bit and they're like, nah. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, I think the best thing about it is the music, for sure. I, I love that she's blasting Mamas and Papas yes. at her little mom and pop shop. That's I think that's cute. That was the funny thing I remember, because you, you said that you were about to watch it, and I'm like, ah, oh, you're never <laughs> going to get that song out of your head. And you're like, what is he talking about? And you came <laughs> back, and you're like, ah, oh, I know now. Can, yeah. So they, they've got this repetitive use of California dreaming throughout, which hopefully Calvin, you'll insert behind me as I talk about this a little bit. And it, sure. and it comes up just so often in the film, but it's it's, it's really good because it's catchy still and fun, and it fits the character very well. It's, it's a very, you know, inspired use of music, but yeah, it's going to get stuck in your head. <laughs> and I like it because the music exists within the within the film, that they're always on, uh, they're always on the, um, on their stereos, and yeah. every time you see a stereo box, you think, oh, we know what's coming now. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess it is a note that this part is in the second half of the film, Cooking Express is split into two stories, which don't really intersect, which is one of my problems no. with it. it they, they don't seem like they complement each other very well. They just exist together. I mean, I, what's what's the overlap? It's like two cops falling in love with different people. I mean, I just, I just thought like half of it could be cut. Yeah, well, it's the thing is that you could have made a stronger story, I think, out of either one of these. Apparently, the next film that uh, Wong Kar Wai made was initially supposed to be kind of third one in here, but he ended up making a whole mm-hmm. film out of it. But I don't know, it just, you know, at least when, he, when I see multiple stories, I want them to kind of interlock together. Otherwise, what's the purpose? It's just a collection of shorts that you decide to make a feature. 
Yeah, and I didn't like the first short either in this case. Yeah. And I, it, it didn't move me or do anything for me. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, check it out. Definitely it's uh, notable. Wong Kar Wai's other, you know, big film, you know, uh, romance-wise, he did uh, In the Mood for Love. Much better, you know, film by most people's standards. Definitely by ours. I think we both agree that In the Mood for Love, I think it does much more interesting things with the slow... Uh, slowed frame rate and uh, it has a lot more interesting effects in the way that he wants to shoot the film indeed you know but you could definitely tell it's made by the same guy one car why he loves those effects and uh i mean if you're looking for more like that i'd say go watch if beale street could talk that's it's definitely feels like a car why film and it feels like in the same tone as these two mm -hmm. that's a great recommendation calvin uh, with that, let's uh, move on to our feature film of the week. We mentioned we were stuck in the snow this past week, so and we want to get back to our westerns, so we're diving into spaghetti westerns for the first time this week. Drumroll, please, is The Great Silence. All right, I think that's enough silence, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that should be good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, so Great Silence is a uh, spaghetti western, one of the great spaghetti westerns from director um, Sergio Corbucci, I believe that's how you say that, yeah. uh, who is also notable. I don't know if you know, he directed Django as well, first Django film. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Another very I'm notable spaghetti western. I may not lean into a lot of the names on this because I'm positive I'm like outside Corbucci that I'm going to uh, butcher most of them. I'm not, I'm not um, even going to try and pronounce the main guy. I'll say his name is Jean-Louis something. I'm not going to yeah. bother with that last name. His character name, Silence, of course, the mute gunfighter. And that's what he will be referred to from the rest of this podcast. Yeah, I mean, we could call him Silence if we need to, but I feel like we'll just go by character names because we don't want to fuck up language. Oh, I mean, um, other than maybe uh, Klaus Kinsey's character, what, uh, Loco, I think yeah, his name is there. Loco. Yeah, but I don't um, know. I think that we could look at uh, The Great Silence. It came out, it was restored for the first time in theaters last year in 4K, which was pretty exceptional, right? For its 50-year uh, anniversary, uh, this is the second time now, you know, that I watched it just this morning and watched it again, saw the restoration again, but the Blu-ray was even better. Typically, you're going to get a better quality on disc than you will on streaming, um, yeah. and it was phenomenal, blew me away. Get that restoration if you want to see the film. And I do want to note as well, while we're talking about that, that, you know, all, all of our podcasts are typically kind of very spoilery, but The Great Silence is especially spoilery. The The ending of the film is very significant and really changes a lot of the context of things. So if you've not seen it, I, I highly recommend you do that first. Yeah, I, I'd highly recommend it. And I think that you should... Um, I mean, I think you should look at The Great Silence because I don't know what your history is with these spaghetti westerns, but I should share that like, when I was growing up, you couldn't find this. It was one of those things that was talked about openly like in the circles, like... Europe really blew up with this one. It came out in Italy, and it had a note before where the Italian director was like, this is a fantastic film, and I really love what's happening. It's a great example. But really, he hated the film so much, he didn't even want to release it in America. So there was like 10 years where I was just waiting and waiting to see this, and I couldn't believe what I saw once I finally got to it. Mm -hmm. Were you saying that of Corfucci? Like, he didn't want to release the film? No, no, it was uh, all on the producers. Oh, Corbucci, producers. of course, loved it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Producers didn't want to release it, and they, they put out, like, a false statement in front of it in Italy, because you could kind of do whatever you want out there to change perception. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, that's uh, silly, but thankfully we do have it. I think it's also of note that 68, the year this came out, is the same year that Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West came out. So it's like a double whammy of uh, Western spaghetti Western masterpieces in the same year. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, Corbucci always had a bit more stylistic interest than uh, Leone, other than Once Upon a Time in the West. Like We talked about it a little bit the last couple of weeks. We just want a film that's just the first ten minutes of that. Mm. I think The Great Silence is that film. Uh, I don't know. Again, I'm I'm much, very much in the camp that uh, Once Upon a Time in the West is potentially the greatest Western ever. You know, it's it's huge and it's expanse. It's everything you want in a Western, and it ends on this extremely epic scale. But certainly The Great Silence is up there as well. I'll say personally that this viewing kind of made me think that I like this better than The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which most people will consider sacrilege, but... Yeah. Um, you you like this better than what? You like it better than Once Upon a Time in the West? No, no. I like Once Upon a Time okay, in the West better, okay. then Great Sorry. Silence, then Good, Bad, <laughs> okay. the Ugly. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you know my preference there, and I think they're all pretty much... They're, they're all very films. equal. Like, it's, it's a preference thing in that case. I'm not saying that Great Silence is objectively better than The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. You know, certainly it has its high, you know, marks and, you know, influences greater than both of those, undeniably, is Good, Bad, and the Ugly is the more iconic film. But yeah. I think uh, thematically, Once Upon a Time in the West and The Great Silence is superior to um, The Good, I Bad, and the Ugly. I think that uh, The Great Silence is almost, it's hard to compare because it's so outside and abstract of what, um, the only thing really in relation to it is that Silence is a lot like The Man with No Name. Yeah, he's a little bit less wooden, so I kind of like that more he, about his character. Uh, yeah, he's I definitely uh, as far as these kind of laconic Western, you know, spaghetti Western heroes kind of go. He is the most laconic because he cannot talk. <laughs> that's his. Yeah. That's his whole gimmick is that he's he's silent, you know, and and uh, the kind of history that, about about that his backstory where they display you know in a very stylized kind of manner how you know these bounty hunters came and they slid his throat, you know, so that he couldn't speak, he couldn't you know squabble about them. It reminds me a lot of the same kind of flashback from Once Upon a Time in the West, where we get peek into Harmonica's backstory, you know. So, like, the, I think those parallels are interesting, and I think I like the way Once Upon a Time in the West does it a bit more, but still very well done, very well communicated, and not, like, blatantly explanatory in The Great Silence, you know. <laughs> and I think it is funny, because, like, the primary motivation, of course, is that it's a political film, so he's politically silenced, and it's about leaders, like, especially Malcolm X being... Um, assassinated and a very liberal response to that but it's also because um, the actor of silence couldn't speak the same language so right that was kind of the whole share any common language that was the whole conceit is that he's like you know i'm italian but i always you know i always wanted to make a western but i can't because i can't speak english and corporate jews like oh fuck that we'll just make you silent <laughs> and you know there you got it but i didn't actually ever think about that political angle that's the first time i've considered it having brought up I, I thought yeah. about this viewing, I viewed it very much so in the context of the Western genre and what the subversion there meant. But the the political angle of that is very interesting, especially coming from outside of the U.S. Yeah, I mean, especially in Italy where there were strong fascist undercurrents still around after the World War II. Mm -hmm. There were still outposts of that kind of thinking. So when you have these great liberal thinkers being assassinated in America... You know, like Malcolm X and our like social heroes, basically. Um, then you get 
a great reaction piece. Like this has so much historical significance too. I'm pretty sure '68 was the year that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated too. So that's even more significant. Though on top of that, yeah. I mean, there's a lot in it. There's a lot you could read. And uh, I think the great shame is that it never came to America because of that, because I feel like we could have used that. Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting, especially if we if we bring Reese into that as well, I want to discuss for a moment how uh, you've got a black protagonist character in the form of uh, Pauline, the, the widowed um, you know black woman who's uh, Kinski's, you know, kills his husband early in the beginning of the film. Yeah. And, um, and that's something... And I think... Go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say, I think that's an interesting thing because it's, you know, only in kind of some of those later Westerns that you get more representation from black characters. And I want to give a little anecdote that I thought was funny as well. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so there's a while, I believe, you know, you remember as well, I've got my uh, my great Western list that I wrote, you know, the top, the greatest Westerns yeah. in the world and watch them. So one of the times when I was kind of touring around and sharing it to people, you know, on various sites, someone reached out to me and was uh, kind of nitpicking my selection of Unforgiven on the list because it has a prominent character as a black man, even, and they throughout the film they never mention the fact that he's a black man, and that's a weird thing, and that's mm. why it shouldn't count. And it, it's this very odd argument, and and so in retort I brought up another selection on the list, the man who shot Liberty Valance, who has Woody Strode in mm. the role. I'm like, well, I guess I got to take that one off too because. He is a black man in here, and they don't acknowledge it. He's kind of like, no, no, that one's fine, because he's not like a major character in it. <laughs> but, but Unforgiven, you can't, because he's so prominent. I'm like, uh-huh, okay, buddy. And, like, obviously with this one, with the black guy getting taken out, he is the figurehead for, like, Malcolm X and uh, Corpucci's feelings about that as an Italian man. So this is kind of him getting revenge, but also feeling that you can't actually get revenge that that it is politically hopeless mm-hmm. that people will be taken out and nothing will be done to change things so i guess that's a, a good transition to talk a bit about the the ending then you know and we'll come back around to talk about other things as well but the ending was really that kind of the gut punch that sealed my my feelings on it the first time realizing how much more significant this film is because it is a bleak cynical you know dark ending that i did not see coming yeah, really? Uh, I mean, I'm sure you heard about... Well, this is a pretty famous ending, right? Um, I had never heard of it. Should we I just didn't go know. into it? Yeah, I, I think we should go and discuss it. We'll talk about the other facets of the film as well, but I think it's kind of hard to dance around the ending of the film because, like I said, it makes such an impact. It it almost makes the film, I think. Yeah, I think, I think an ending to a Western is the most important part, what it ends up saying about where society is going, so... Uh, if you just want to recap real quickly. So the big thing, the kind of build up here is that we have, um, well, I guess, I guess we need a little bit of context. The idea here is that silence is a, uh, killer of bounty hunters. He goes around and kills them based on his past because his parents were slaughtered by bounty hunters. And so that's his, mm-hmm. his creed, you know, what he does. And Kinski, uh, Klaus Kinski's characters, Loco and his band of bounty hunters go around to the town of Snow Hill. They're collecting people rather maliciously to, to make money. And so the idea is here at the end, there's a standoff between uh, Silence and Kinsey's character, and Silence just gets slaughtered. He, yeah. he gets killed, murdered, just absolutely destroyed by the bad guys. And the, the film ends on this bleakly cynical note as he, you know, like, Kinsey comes and picks up his gun and just leaves his corpse there and moves on to keep doing his thing. This whole time, you know, silence has been built up as this badass, awesome hero, man of few words, 
you know, and the fastest gun around. They make this big emphasis on how fast he is, you know. And yeah. and uh, I think in like the prior scene right before they show his hand getting you know demolished by the embers, his his good shooting hand. Right. And so that's like the kind of the big reason why uh, he's not able to defend himself. And his thing was always that he would never shoot first. Yeah. We're, we're so used to westerns following the bounty hunters. Like uh, our perspective is almost always like the one man outside the law. So this is a weird western in that uh, it doesn't want us to sympathize. Um, it wants to turn that on its head and to make it about a guy who's actually hunting the main characters of any other Western, but also to make them so quintessential, quintessentially evil that you you can't possibly root for Kinski. No, you can't, I and mean, I think that's part of the brilliant casting there, because that's the that's Kinski's kind of mo thing. That's what he does. He's despicable and everything, <laughs> but. I, I thought about, you know, that aspect. I thought about uh, how similar it was to Stagecoach and the idea that it entirely flips expectations of character roles in Westerns. You know, it flips them back essentially where it is. We're rooting for the bad guy, inherently, in this scenario. He's a a reckless killer, essentially. He goes around killing people and he evades the law in this kind of rather cheeky maneuver by waiting until they draw in a, in a right. form of self-defense. But he's killing people who are doing things inherently good for the law, the bounty hunters have a purpose, and they stress that in the film as well, is that they're here taking out the bandits that are plaguing Snow Hill, you know, and even if they're doing yeah, it, like, um, they make it very clear that it's very shady the way they do things, and it's not, you know, for the good of the law necessarily, like, they're very for-profit, but their actions yeah, are in, inherently, they still have a, a purpose, a good purpose. Um, and I think that he's such an exceptionally weird character too um it's just a weird movie overall it feels like the one thing i may not like it feels like the animals are kind of getting abused it it has like a real harshness of character where it feels like the horses are having trouble in the snow and i mean it's just an unforgiving western it feels completely heartless Mm-hmm. And, and that's like kind of the tough thing is they, they build it up this whole time like that's why the ending hits you so hard like damn sledgehammer because they're, yeah. they're building up like it's this very classic style like you're you're cheering for silence the whole time you know he's gonna get the guys he's been kicking ass this whole time and then he just outright loses like uh you know undeniably yeah. and, and the woman that he's in love with now with pauline she gets killed too and everyone in the bar gets murdered just for for no reason. It's this huge massacre, and that's the note the movie ends on. It's nihilistic as hell. I mean, you think that every western is basically a redemption story, and it's about coming back over the greatest of odds. But this is a uh, this is basically like the odds are with their. Uh, I don't even want to call him a hero, but they're with silence. Like it feels like he's going to win the whole movie. I mean, there's nothing. Uh, to really suggest until he gets his hand burned in that um, furnace once he uh, gets associated with the woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just... I remember I was, I was very shocked the first time, and it really improved my view of the film the first time, because the first time I didn't quite catch everything that was going on dialogue-wise. It was hard. You know, the dub is not great on the English version, necessarily. No. And, and that's a shame. It's, it's better than... You know, previous times I had seen it, like you mentioned, like this 50-year anniversary is a, is a gorgeous transfer, both in audio and dialogue, compared to what we had before. I had the chance to see the film, like, streaming on Amazon, like, uh, mm. probably a year ago or so, but I didn't because I had seen the quality of 
some of the spaghetti westerns that they had available. They were <laughs> dreadful. I was like, I cannot watch this. I literally will be miserable watching this. I'm going to wait. And so when I found out about the, the anniversary Blu-ray, I went and rented that. And it was absolutely gorgeous. Um, so I guess that's, that's another important fact to talk about is that it's a beautifully shot film. Uh, it's a... And- yeah, I should say that like my growing memory of this was that I I was growing up with this film as it was transferred down from like copies of copies. Mm-hmm. This was like one that was barely circulated, and you know you might eventually find a a three a copy that's been copied over from someone else. And so when I got it on Amazon originally, I was like, "This is fine. This is a, this is how I'm used to this. Uh, you know, not having a good transfer of this. But God, it's so beautiful now." It's fucking gorgeous. It is. The, I love it. The snowscapes in the film, so it's like entirely filled in this snowy environment, which is very unusual for a Western film. There's very few kind of wintry Westerns like this, but this is the one, and it's absolutely beautiful. The snow is pristine and perfect. I was thinking about it, you know, when I was driving kind of around town today when it was all snowy, and you don't see any of the, the kind of gross, muddy snow in the film. It's all just, just pristine, white, crystalline snow. And uh, we should say it's like based in the mountains of Utah, but it's in it's filmed in the Italian Dolomite, so it is like the lush Italian mountainscapes uh, stuck within, you know, snow prairies, like whole prairies of just fluffy white snow, mm-hmm. and it works so well. And it works to kind of like emphasize that snow is kind of a silencer, and it it kind of drowns out sound the more snow you have. Well, I think and it that also kind of goes into the title. Yeah, I think it also echoes how bleak and cold the film is you know like it really emphasizes that that tone that you really feel by the end of it there you know this isn't like you know those kind of you know run around in the desert shoot em up you know the indians kind of western this one is mm. very dead serious and you know distant i mean it barely has any real american politics to it at all other than like the uh, of course the the social implications of the massacres, but right, um, and that's not inherently spelled out. That's again, that was something I didn't even identify until you pointed out here. But I see the parallels very clearly now, and yeah, you know, I think that's the kind of best kind of social commentary when it's kind of snuck in there under the radar. It's, it's a uh, you know kind of signaling to you without you even noticing. And I really appreciate that about it. That can be watched either way, and I didn't even notice, of course, until like you know I probably spent like fifteen years with the movie before I ever came to any political c- conclusion about it. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's such an interesting parallel, I think, to make as well, because not only do you have to think about the time it was set in, but you also have to think that they're making a commentary on very American, you know, politics going out of time all the way across the, the pond there. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, some of the best Westerns uh, internationally are commentaries from the outside about America that that they could view it in such a precise lens because they have the the distance to have a little bit more foresight. We're kind of inside all our issues, so we don't really have the clarity of, uh, you know, looking back 2020 and seeing how things actually were. Right. Well, and that's one of my favorite things, I think, about Westerns is that when you think about it, Westerns, if you distill them down, are uh, always a commentary on American ideals and American, you know, uh, politics and whatnot going on at the time, you know. That's what's great about them. They're, they're, they're this, um, you know, this ground, this perfect groundwork for American idealism and everything that's good and bad about America. You know, so when you see Western and you see them, you know, poorly, you know, portraying the Native American characters, I don't view that as a negative so much as I feel that as an honesty. 
It's a it's very American thing that's still very common, unfortunately. And so yeah. it, and that's what it is. A Western distilled down is America at its best and worst. Yeah, I, I just think it's a representation of America. However, it is it's honest and it's hard. And that's why they've so. been so enduring. That's why they're they're this, these legendary format to tell stories and you know a lot of people want to dismiss westerns and I, I think that's what they're missing they don't see yeah. that you know that that greater uh commentary that's going on underneath them and i think i see i think i see what they're looking at they're looking at oh it was a trend from 50 years ago it's not something i need to care about in 2019 but i think you absolutely do to understand the american identity of cinema at all mm-hmm. i think you should go explore some of these uh westerns Especially the Italian ones will tell you the most about America, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other uh, immediate recommendations for ones that you know, are explicitly, uh, you know, commentative on America? Oh, God, not off the top of my head. But, uh, I mean, all of them are uh, immediate, have immediate value in that way. I was thinking about this morning how this is such a great influence on um, Tarantino. But, of course, he's American. And then once you get, like, his version of uh, The Hateful Eight, this, which is like a remake of this, and um, what's my yeah. what's my other favorite one? Uh, what's it called? God, what's that other Italian western? Because um, uh, Cutthroat's Nine is the one I'm ah, thinking of. Okay, yeah. See, the, the other important thing to remember is that I'm I'm much more versed in the world of classic American westerns, you know, from the you know 50s and you know 40s and whatnot. Whereas you have a much more eclectic history, you know, understanding of Italian westerns. I think we've got that good kind of back and forth there we got everything covered yeah um so cutthroats nine is the other significant snow western it is fucking gritty it's just like this one where there's like an abandoned horse and people want to eat it so Mm -hmm. i definitely recommend that one if you're looking for um just another take at a different kind of italian western um but all of the italian westerns i think have significant commentary on american ideals yeah, I, I can definitely see that being the case. I think that's an interesting subject to explore. You know, definitely something to dig deep into. Um, but I think it's also just important to talk about just how v- visually and interesting, you know, The Great Silence is just from a pure aesthetic level. You know, it's a, it's a very cool film in different ways, you know, <clears throat> as well as being, you know, deeply uh, poetic. Yeah. Um, uh I just like the Western format for storytelling too, because it gives you such a, um, such a open canvas to tell any kind of story, but also it's always social inherently. So you could pull anything you want out of any of them, I think. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, there is certainly also the, you know, inherent, just a escapist kind of angle that you can go at. Like people just want to, you know, play cowboy for a bit. And the great silence certainly provides a lot of opportunity to do that. Lots of great, moments of action, lots of, you know, kind of, like, violence kind of going back and forth there. One of my favorite facets, I think, as well, is that Silence has this really unique gun. Yeah, it does. It, and it's just this this very cool thing. I don't know exactly how to describe it, um, but it's like, it's like a, it looks German. It looks like some kind of German pistol, more so. But from what I understand, from what I read, you know, it is still period accurate. Like, it was a very new gun at the time the film kind of takes place. But I love how it's got, you know, it's got this wooden holster. It's kind of like a box that he pulls it out of. And then you can attach it on the end and make it like a, a mini kind of rifle to help him aim better. <laughs> they call it like a mini machine gun in the film, but yeah. uh, that's not even quite what it is. It's more pistol than, you know, machine. Right, and, and I really like it. It's just this cool thing. Like, I don't think it draws as much attention to it as, say, the, the Gatling in Django does. 
you know. Right. Or I feel like that's a little overcompensating, but you know, I, I do like the the little pistol that uh, Silence has, and it makes him kind of stand out even more than he already does as a character. And of course, the <laughs> the costumes are all really great too. I love all the furs. Everyone's got these big furs on, very cozy looking. You know, it adds to the aesthetic of the film, which we talked about. You know, kind of the cold, wintry aesthetic going on here. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting how everyone's dressed, and it. Uh, you could look at like the sheriff. He has a uh, he has some weird, almost Clint Eastwoodish. Uh, um, what would you call them? Those uh, slips that he throws on. Right. I don't know. Did you notice, by the way, speaking of the sheriff, the the sheriff you'll recognize as well from Once Upon a Time in the West. In the West. Yeah. 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 He's he plays uh, Brett McBain. He's the father who gets killed early on by Henry Fonda. He's not a very efficient sheriff in this film. <laughs> no, but he, you know he tries. I'm seeing you know in this time that he's really fighting you know Kinsey's character and trying to you know kind of circumvent his looseness around the law. As well as the the judge in the town, uh, I think that's what he is, guess, right? Yeah, we should talk a little bit about Kinski. I feel like he's the most evil guy in any kind of western in this film. Yeah, uh, again, maybe only rivaled by. I, I really love how sinister, like subversively sinister, Henry Fonda is in Once Upon a Time in the West. You yeah, know? like he's he's so cold, but uh, whereas Kinski has this kind of charm to him you know where it's, it's very snake-like i feel like kinski is yeah. where i you know i kind of like I'm, I'm along for it so much as i don't i don't hate him so much but he's undeniably despicable and evil but then this thing is i think it makes good contrast for his character because his actions are only somewhat evil i feel like because he's got this like the, the bounty hunter thing going on he's still doing for the most part, morally good things. It's about when he starts killing the sheriff that things are kind of like, all right, this guy's not a good guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he goes pretty twisted eventually once he's get, gotten into the jail and you see him breaking really hard. Yeah, um, but up until then, he, he basically plays it pretty straight into the law. Yeah, he does. <laughs> you know, he, he kills all of his bounties, which, you know, people are like, you know, you don't have to. And he's like, yeah, but this is easier. And it's like, all right, it makes sense. You know, um, <laughs> he is like a stake. I feel like he's like the perfect format for what we'd eventually get to with like the Joker or something. You look at Klaus Kinski here or uh, Nosferatu, and you see a lot of the influence of how evil someone can look and really, uh, what someone that's criminally insane looks like. Really, if you look at Kinski anywhere, I mean, yeah, he, he, he was just kind of an evil person in a lot <laughs> yeah. of ways, just a general, like, unpleasant asshole. So it makes sense here. Like, and, and that's the thing is that I, normally I would condemn that kind of thing, but y you know it, it just blends into the character. So I guess I give it a pass. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I give him a pass for Herzog, but I, uh, I think it's I think it's hard to I don't think it's hard to separate here because he does make the character more evil, and um, it feels really bad when he ends up winning, doesn't it? Oh yeah, it's it's just so deflating. You know, he, <laughs> that's the biggest thing I remember taking away. Like, my heart just sank watching, you know, Silence get, <laughs> like, mutilated with bullets oh at the end. I'm just, oh my god, it's, it, and it comes that out of nowhere. And then, that and then the ending text is complete downer. It's like, things are never going to get better. This is how they are in the West, and it's bad. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about, like, I'm like, what are, like, the most nihilistic endings? And then I thought of, like, this and Vertigo. They're both just really, like, <laughs> gut punches of endings there. I mean, I think that's the whole reason it wasn't released in America because it was about all of that stuff and 
then, you know, um, it was all about all those politics and then it gave us no solution. It was just like, you guys are fucked and we see it from over in Italy too. Mm -hmm. There's no real solution. There's no obvious way where the good guys can win. It's just... No. And like the ending text is kind of like somewhat gives you an idea. It's like, you know, yeah, they and they took this forward and kind of got rid of bounty hunters after that. But, you know, you know, there's probably still some bounty hunters out there. Yeah, yeah, they seem pretty unbeatable in this film anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you do have the idea that uh, Silence will come through and that he will win because he always has. But yeah, I guess it's a it's a good lesson here that he he doesn't necessarily, you can't always win, certainly not by yourself, you know, and I think that's kind of one of the big lessons to, to learn here. I also think about, you know, I just watched High Noon again as recently, you know, kind of in a Western mood again, and this similar yeah. kind of, thing you got going there but you know he wins in high noon that's a big difference yeah. here you know italian westerns are much more darker you know that's the big change you have there from american kind of westerns they they play more gritty you know more realistic you know they don't have these rose tinted you know glasses when viewing the western genres very much everyone was a shit bag and it was out for themselves and I kind of, I kind of prefer that too. I like that kind of nihilism in my western, which is most. That's pe- probably why I lean into the spaghetti. Yeah, most people seem to, at least most people I encounter, seem to prefer the spaghetti westerns. It might also just be like an age bracket thing. Like I don't know, maybe when we're all in our sixties, everyone will jump on board with me. But <laughs> I mean, I think there's no denying the influence of the old west, and I just feel like we're. At least politically not on board with that anymore. Certainly. uh, Something like this resounds for me a lot right now, especially. Yeah, and I I totally get that. I I have that kind of idealist side where I can can see one day where we might get back to the days where old, you know, old-style Westerns upheld our, you know, beliefs and values. You know, the kind of Rio Bravos and whatnot, but that's definitely not the case today. (laughs) I would say it's not even the case when Rio Bravo did, you know. No, it... And, I mean, just because you want to make the Western great again doesn't mean we're all going with you. Yeah. Oh, I'm on, I'm on board, though, because those are... Uh, the classics are all perfect movies, and we've forgotten um, maybe the morals of why they're perfect. Mm-hmm. It's not just American exceptionalism. There's there's something bigger at, at heart there. Well, I think the same thing is that the spaghetti Westerns can't exist without the righteous moralities of the original Westerns, you know? <laughs> it's true. You can't be subversive if there's not something to subvert in the first place. The Great Silence, something like this, which is entirely like a reversal of your expectations, only works because there have been films that have established your expectations to begin with. And so that's... And that's that's what I want to say about Tarantino, because he's such an awful writer that he can <laughs> make this interesting. Like, he stole all the best ideas of this in Cutthroat's Nine, and then he just made it into a straight-faced, uh, you know, American Western with a little mystery in it, and it's boring as fuck. I think one of the weird things I remember reading as well, uh, I'd have to confirm source on this as well, but it's apparently I read somewhere that when he was making Hateful Eight, one of the influences he took while writing it was Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And I'm I, I'm just baffled by that, like, the just the sheer ego it takes to be influenced by your own film. <laughs> yeah, what was what's your biggest influence at uh, myself? Obviously. <laughs> yeah. So I mean it is it is Reservoir Dogs, so it's the plot of Hateful Eight in a way, I guess. Essentially, like and there's also some I remember there's a lot of influence with the thing as well being contained in a wintry setting, not knowing who's the betrayer or whatever, you know. It's all it's all there, but definitely like I don't think Hateful Eight is as good as any of the other films that we've listed so far. 
it's definitely a lot and of pastiche. And I feel like this has a this might have a great influence also on things like um like the thing actually that that the thing might not exist with this film where you don't really know who's the good guy and you don't know who to root for and there might not be a great ending. Mm-hmm. I do want to point out something. So, hopefully, the thing and the great silence all have one major thing in common that we have somehow not brought up in the entire time of this discussion. What's that? Oh, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Who, who? You know what it is? Yeah, Maricone. Yeah, it is. It's another fantastic, masterful Ennio Morricone score, which I hope you also play a little bit here while we talk about it. And the thing about this one is it's totally different from any of his other scores. It's weirdly uh, settled down, and it's it's spaced out. Like, you have these long shots that won't focus on anything for a while, and Maricone will just come chipping in, but it doesn't really move anywhere like his, uh, his zangy um, Leone Western scores mm-hmm. do. This one's very serene. I think it's very reflective of the environment and the kind of tone of the film as well. I find it's very perfect. Like... And again, it's another good juxtaposition. It's very kind of floaty and, you know, kind of dancey kind of music. You know, while the film itself is very bleak in contrast by the end. Yeah, it feels like Maricone is just gliding over the snow. Like he's just, you know, he's just kind of sliding through the film. And it's it's totally different from his other Western uh, scores. Yes, it's very very fanciful. I I loved it the first time. I loved it especially this time. You know, it's very beautiful. Um, you know, and I, and I like it in some ways more than some of the other ones, which are much more kind of in your face and declarative. Like, I don't think anything's going to ever beat like, you know, Ecstasy of Gold or El Trio or whatever at the end of Good, Bad, mm-hmm. and the Ugly. Um, you know, overall, I think my favorite score from him is still Once Upon a Time in the West as a whole. You know, I think it's just a perfect compliment to the film. But this one as well, it's, it's so very different, but undeniably Morricone. And I've heard lots of people... You know, lots of scores that try and imitate Morricone that can never ever get it right. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's really no. Uh, I don't know if you could really imitate him. I mean, there are scores that I like much more, like the Big Gun Down and Once Upon a Time in the West. Of course, those are like my favorite uh, Morricone. Um, this one just has its own. Um, I wouldn't listen to it outside the film, is what I'd say about it. I see. It is perfect context in the film. See, that's the thing is that I think I uh, disagree with you. I would absolutely listen to this outside of the film, you know, on a very regular basis. I like to listen to soundtracks a lot. Uh, typically, you know, uh, whenever I work, I, I put on a soundtrack, something very much like this. It's kind of very, you know, uh, easy listening, kind of serene kind of thing. And it helps me kind of wake up a little more and come back into, you know, the world from my dream state. <clears throat> so I think this yeah, is a th- perfect kind of thing for, for that. I especially love this this score. Maybe like in these winter months where you have the snow on the ground, I could see you throwing this on your headphones and getting a lot out of it. Definitely, I think this would be a perfect thing. You bring this out to you know on the boombox and you sit on the patio and watch the snowfall. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I I I really enjoyed watching it while while the snow was coming down this week too. That that just put me in the perfect mood for it. Mm-hmm. Walking outside and smoking and. You know, feeling like I was in a Western a little bit. Yeah. It felt pretty good. I guess I, I want to point out, that's a, that's a really great moment I remember in the film where uh, Silence is trying to provoke Kinski, and he does so by, like, lighting his match, and he flips it into his whiskey. <laughs> Throwing it in. Yeah. And, and, and then and, and and Kinski's then, uh, like, no, no, it's cool. He just takes it out, and then he flicks the cigar in after that. 
Yeah, as he's going for a drink and it's all smoky from the, you know, he's like, I'm just going to drink it anyway because I'm pretty cool. It's, then it, even it, after he gets the cigar out, he looks like he's still going to drink it because he's that, it that just, much of a pig in this. <laughs> it adds that extra smoky flavor, you know. That's what you look for. In- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, it's a great moment because Kinski doesn't even trust himself, so he has the guy unarm him with his gun. He doesn't even want to touch his gun because mm-hmm. he knows silence will draw on him so fast. Right, and I was thinking he knows that, you know, he, he doesn't want to provoke this, he's not going to give in to this. And I thought about that scene, I'm like, think about this scene, like, in a reverse, like, what if Kinski was the protagonist? You, yeah. You can absolutely see that in the reverse, and, and it kind of... And I think, I think up until that point, he kind of is. I think at that point, there's, like, a tonal shift where he, Kinski can't be the protagonist anymore. Yeah, once he gets uh, locked up in the jail, that's when he, he loses it, and, you know, the, the kind of sour side of the west comes out if, if you view the film from the opposite way if kinski's supposed to be the good guy the bounty hunter who you know follows the law and silences the bad person who's killing bounty hunters killing the good guys then it's up until that point where he still falls into the tropes of being a protagonist a good you know law-abiding character and after that once he's put in jail and he gets his way out from there you see the sour side of the west kind of come out that typical spaghetti western side where the heroes and villains are all the same. And it is hard to say, right? Like, it's hard to say which side anyone ends up on because it is such a morally bleak, ambiguous Western. Mm-hmm. It's, again, it's not clear. And that's one of the, the great, you know, characteristics of a spaghetti Western is that, you know, none of the characters are morally righteous. Again, it's it's mm-hmm. very revisionist in that tone. You know, it, it says that this is not how things were in the West, you know, before we have bad guys on every side. Everyone was out for themselves. It was a dog-eat-dog kind of world. Very lawless everywhere. You know, and that's the thing, is that the law was only where it could be. You know, the the film starts with no sheriff, essentially, no upholder of the law. It's just the bounty hunters who are more or less doing any kind of goodness. And and I think that's the thing, is that they they play a really good point as well of pointing out that the people who are breaking the laws, you know, the, the rogues on the outskirts of town, are only doing so because they... They can't get work, you know, and it, again, that kind right. of, that's another American political statement that, you know, people, look at that, again, especially the, the, the black man is killed by the law because he had to commit crimes to survive. You know, it's a systematic injustice. And you could look at it like what happens when you silence your heroes that are fighting for that side and you give a voice to the people that shouldn't have a voice. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a very interesting perspective that adds even more layers of nuance to the film you know again especially considering the time the 60s were very mm-hmm. rife with political activism definitely um i think that's uh just about all we have to say i can't think of you know anything else of note that you want to talk about with the great silence here um i think it's well it's probably my favorite winter western i know we both watched uh, mccabe and miss miller so i guess i just ask where it falls for you know I think I like McCabe maybe just a, a little bit more, but this, oh, really? this viewing of The Great Silence like just shot it up in my rankings. It's a, it's a top <laughs> ten western for me now. Like I, I still have my wit list that I make, and I still stand by that list. But I, I would have to revise it in the future if I was to do another one. You know, it's. I mean, it's very much like I said, know, even I, a bad writer like Tarantino can be influenced by something <laughs> as good as this. Like I said, this is this is probably my second favorite spaghetti western I, li- I like this more than the good bad and the ugly which i feel like is, is more style than substance you know 
And I, I still want to get you to watch Cutthroat's Nine, even though the transfer is horrendous. I, I hope we'll get that same treatment someday for that. Because uh, there's a lot of these westerns out there that you should watch, but you, you don't really want to watch right now. Yeah, well, it's a, you know, there's another statement that we need to make for more work towards film preservation. You know, I'm so very grateful that this film has such a glorious restoration, you know, and I certainly look forward to purchasing the film for myself very soon here. But hopefully we'll get more of those because I have a lot of interest in spaghetti westerns, but, you know, it's just hard when some aren't, um, you know, done very well. Yeah, I mean, I, there's just a lot of lost material and... Uh, a lot of them just had shaky releases even coming over. The, uh, the American interest in them has been very scattered. So I'm very grateful when something like this comes through. And uh, I feel like this, this podcast is more like a public service saying just how fucking great this restoration is. So mm -hmm. I hope that's the takeaway. Yeah, hopefully this will inspire some others to go check out that restoration. Because at the very least, that's an achievement that needs to be acknowledged please uh, do yourself a service and go check it out just just on a visual level it's fantastic yeah it's an amazing film it it holds up greatly and it feels like it was just shot yesterday now so mm -hmm. i hope you go out and check it out yeah well thanks again calvin for you know uh discussing this film with me again i know this one's one of your big favorites so you were very much looking forward to it absolutely thanks so much all right see you next week then Thank you.